Brexit is an expression of problems that you know the US, all post-industrial democracies are sharing, which is a problem about productivity and growth and investment. And it's all being squeezed even harder now because of uh, you know inflation and the rising interest rates. You know, is making the old cheap money policies much much harder to sustain. Brexit creates a permanent structural problem. The politics can change, but unless you're going to do something really fundamental like rejoin, you're stuck with the problem that you created. We have is a nothing to see here. We'll be able to kind of just muddle our way through. And my worry is that that kind of soothing local anaesthetic that is applied all the time is going to lead to a world where UK just gets relatively slowly poorer. This is The Global Gambit. Welcome back, everybody. It is Gambit time. Usually the global Gambit is just that, global. But this time we're going home. We've been talking a little bit about Brexit in the past few years in a, in a way that is relevant, but maybe not the direct topic of point. But this time it is. And then, normally I try to toe quite a neutral line, objective one. But with this one, I don't think I'm going to. I'm very much a Remainer, a Ramona, uh, and someone who has been directly uh, affected millennial by the said post-Brexit events. But joining me today to discuss that in more detail and with his new book is Peter Foster. Peter Foster is the public policy editor of Financial Times uh, and I'm delighted to host him, frankly, because I just sent him a a quick tweet uh, asking if he would be willing to join and here we are. So um, this is a sort of an expansion on also the podcast I heard with him in uh, the Rackman Review, Gideon Rackman. Highly recommend you to to follow that. But um, Peter, it's it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for joining the uh, the Global Gambit. Nice to be with you. I think the first thing I'd like to hear from you is, can you take us through, I guess, some of the broader domestic themes? You've been traveling up and down the country quite a lot, obviously, as part of your, your work, but also in, in the run-up for the publication. The main theme of the book is to try and, before we have a conversation about what to do about Brexit, try and have a fact-based analysis on why Brexit has proved so difficult for so many businesses and so many uh, young people. You mentioned yourself being a millennial. So we see uh, essentially the UK doing a reverse trade deal with its largest market. Typically, uh, trade deals are there to remove trade barriers. And the UK chose to do a trade deal that erected trade barriers with its largest market. Uh, you know, the consequence of that uh, has cascaded all the way through the economy, and particularly in the manufacturing, particularly in the goods sector. Uh, it's just made it much harder to uh, maintain client relationships in the EU to maintain business and investment. And we see uh, a survey again this week just coming out from the British Chambers of Commerce that UK business investment is flatlining, continued to flatline uh, uh, since the referendum. So across the piece, what you see is just the impact of marginal frictional disadvantage between the UK and the EU, particularly, as I say, for manufacturers and for supply chains. And it's worth remembering that whilst the economy might be 80% services, 50% of UK exports are goods, and you need a high-value manufacturing sector uh, in order to uh, drive research and development, uh, you know, in order to connect the uh, research parts of your economy with the manufacturing piece. And you know what you've seen is the polls moving at the same time. So uh, even those people who voted uh, for Brexit, voted for Boris Johnson in 2019 in the Get Brexit Done election, are now admitting a plurality of of those voters admitting they feel Brexit made the economy weaker than it otherwise would have been, the cost of living worse than it otherwise would have been, uh, labour shortages worse than they otherwise would have been. Uh, And I think that's the overall picture. Uh, Economically, politically, you know, the Tory party just had their conference in Manchester. They're really uh, continuing to champion what they call the benefits of Brexit. 
And I explain in the book why those are so difficult to obtain, because even when you deregulate or have nimbler regulation in the UK, the trouble is you create two regulatory environments, one in the UK, a market of 55 million people, and one in the EU, one of 450 million people. And I think the other bit that is not understood properly about Brexit is how much of an ongoing problem it is for the UK economy, because it creates a permanent structural regulatory divergence between the EU and the UK. And if you're a business, that just creates two regulatory jurisdictions, two sets of rules to comply with. Uh, and that, of course, is you know a factor in when businesses make investment decisions uh, you know a factor that that in you know over time will tend them away from the UK yeah i i think for many people like myself we'll just use myself as a case study thing for this conversation um i ended up going study uh, about european british politics in barcelona the day of the uh, of the referendum result landed in spain and oh boy to this to this point though you know isn't it purely the and this is obviously going to be a leading provocative question but the whole reason brexit has failed is because it's just lies it's uh, it's nothing more than a, a a set of detached members of parliament who wanted to push through a very specific set of uh, agendas and goals for their own gains um you know some of the biggest um supporters of brexit were those who are more than well educated highly advanced you know degrees uh but simply just wanted to reduce their own personal you know taxation or, or whatever you know we we saw the it's making me think of the statistic we saw earlier in the year where every everywhere in the uk bar skegness and one other county i believe one other um, district regrets regrets right uh this decision is that something that is is generally felt from from businesses across the uk so i I think there's a number of things going on here. Well, one is, you know, regret, as you call it, is a complicated emotion. So even those people who voted for Brexit may now think it's not going very well. But some of those people think it's not going very well just because we haven't implemented it well enough. Right. Remember that Brexit was first and foremost, I think, an expression of national and nationalist, English nationalist identity, you know, re re reclaiming control, take back control. So, you know, that whole narrative about the UK being shackled to a corpse, which, of course, was completely topsy-turvy. You know, the, we weren't, when we were shackled to the EU single market, that, of course, all the economic research shows improved UK productivity, improved UK investment, improved UK growth over the 40 years we were members of the EU. But still, the narrative is that we were shackled to a corpse. And I think even those people who now express regret don't necessarily want to rejoin. I think the other thing is, We've had a situation where none of the political parties have really pointed to the finger at what Brexit's done to manufacturing, to the car industry, attracting uh, you know, investment in, in the EV transition, the electric vehicle transition. We've had a situation where none of the political parties have really pointed to the finger at what Brexit's done to manufacturing, to the car industry, attracting uh, you know, investment in, in the EV transition, the electric vehicle transition. We haven't had a situation where political parties, including the main opposition Labour Party, have been pointing the finger aggressively and saying, see, look, that's what Brexit's done. And so when you factor in the cost of living crisis, the war in Ukraine, the COVID pandemic, I think that Tory message that there are a few problems with Brexit, but blame it on something else, actually does create a pretty effective smokescreen because the impacts of Brexit are not catastrophic. What they are is a, is a you know, the boiling of the frog, as I sometimes like to say, where over time, it just puts the UK economy at a marginal competitive disadvantage 
from its largest market. And that is a slow attritional thing. So I was in Swindon the other week, and they used to have the Honda factory, and they used to have some of the best foreign investment in Europe, Wacom, uh, Motorola, Burma Castrol, uh, you know, all of that, you know, has faded over the last couple of decades. And now they're trying to reboot it. But the trouble they have is they're no longer the stepping stone to Europe that they once were. So that Honda factory is now closed, partly, not exclusively, but partly because of Brexit. And it's been replaced by a logistics operation. Now, that means that Swindon doesn't have a, a unemployment crisis. You know, uh, one factory's closed, another's open. But I think if you if you look at some of the work the Resolution Foundation has done, an economics think tank in the UK, what you see is that you see high value, higher wage, higher productivity jobs being replaced by lower value, lower wage, lower productivity jobs. And you know, a logistics factory is lower productivity and lower skill and lower wage than a uh, a car factory. And that I think is the malaise, and that's one of the difficulties in the UK. Uh, you know, for making the argument that we need to address some of the challenges that Brexit throws up and is going to continue to throw up as the EU introduces things like supply chain due diligence, plastic packaging due diligence, carbon border taxes, all of that is going to make further gap, further friction between UK and EU and single market businesses. But, you know, those are quite difficult points to land politically. So I don't think, you know, that there's a great sort of regret revolution brewing out there. I think actually, on the contrary, you know, the Labour Party doesn't want to join the single market and the customs union. All the parties, to a greater or lesser degree, say that, look, we can tinker with this deal and we can basically make it okay. except an awful lot of businesses who, whilst they kind of accept we are where we are, are not at all convinced that the kind of minor fixes, whilst welcome, that are being proposed would really move the dial on, you know, the frictions that we see as a result of the trade and cooperation agreement. Yeah, just on that point, actually, it was one of the questions I I wanted to pose to you, which is that the Tory government, this is a a very international podcast, of course, there'll be quite a few Brits um, and Americans likely watching. We have a a 2024 is going to be a a very important year for several big elections, two of which are the British and the Americans. And that's not me trying to sound like sort of the world is still centred around those two countries. But 24 is big for the UK, obviously, uh, they've been in power for a long time, 13 years. And uh, after this speech given by Sunak, I think uh, maybe you might have a slightly different assessment, but, you know, a large proportion of people are, are saying, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty out of ideas. And so this brings me to the idea of the other parties. You've made it quite clear that you don't think any party is really going to push to rejoin as such. But isn't this part of the problem that there has been such a fickle, willing... Um, feeling around wanting to be staunchly clear on the position of Brexit. I mean, the Liberal Democrats, the third major party in the UK for for, for, for foreign viewers, were, were very much the pro-EU party up until the final days of the uh, Brexit deal being finalised. Now they've basically completely dropped that and largely just push uh, other sort of more progressive uh, agenda items. Is it definitely, you know, let's say we've got a Lib Lab coalition, for example, it's definitely just not a case that we're going to see a, a push to rejoin the customs union at a minimum it's just going to be we're just going to sort of what reverse some of the policies uh, i remember looking at the the recent deal that was established between the uk and eu over horizon of all things it's not exactly a uh, an extravagant uh, trade deal struck um but von der leyen um you know being sort of almost wet-eyed because it was sort of an achievement of, of grandiose proportions uh, what do you think about uh, the general sort of political climate in the uk a little bit more 
I don't think you're going to see a major shift on the points of the customs union and single market. Uh, single market membership requires free movement and rule taking across the board, uh, as Norway does. And I think that politically is impossible. Uh, there's been no real pitch rolling. And that's a good English cricket expression where you, where you roll the pitch before you play on it to make it to prepare to prepare for the game. You know, there's not been much preparation with the electorate. There won't be a particularly strong democratic mandate uh, from the electorate. And therefore, I think what you will see is Labour, assuming that the polls are correct and that Labour wins, I think what you will see is Labour making a, a, an attempt to draw the line under the uh, very abrasive and confrontational relationship uh, that uh, was between Europe and the UK when Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss were Prime Minister. Remember, mm. that process has already begun under Rishi Sunak. He signed the Windsor Framework deal, which put to bed the, the row over Northern Ireland, which, which had really put diplomatic relations in the deep freeze. He did that Horizon deal. But remember, the Horizon deal is essentially the UK paying into what we call European programs, right? You pay to play. And in fact, the UK will pay more, will put more into that program almost certainly than it gets out. And so the EU's never had a problem with that, right? If people want to come and pay to play, then that's great. Israel and Japan, I think New Zealand have got a Horizon deal. You know, that that's not a problem. And there's also not really a sovereignty problem there because, you know, you're not accepting European Court of Justice oversight. I think the, the tricky bit for Starmer, once he's expressed interest in a you know deeper security partnership, creating perhaps some kind of apparatus that allows the UK more formal ways to integrate with the EU. When I want to say integrate, I mean have discussions, because there is a partnership council and there's all these committees in the TCA, but what's missing is really a consistent political level interface between the UK and the EU. Remember, when you remember every quarter, all the leaders of Europe, the 27 countries, 28 as was, get in the room together at the quarterly European Council. The UK has no apparatus for that. And I think Starmer will probably look to create one. Remember, the EU and the, since Brexit, the EU and the US, for example, have got their trade and technology council. Uh, they've got a you know security agreement, uh, you know where they have regular discussions. There's a regular forum for discussion. I think the UK will try and build that. Of course, none of that fixes the stuff we were talking about earlier, which is the nuts and bolts piece. Now there are things that the Labour Party could do within their red lines of no single market, no customs union that would make life easier for some sectors. So they could do a veterinary agreement, a Swiss-style veterinary agreement, where they agree axiomatically to align with EU standards on plant and animal products, which is one of the big holdups with, with or, or frictions at the border, that would be good for the food and drink industry. I think it would have to be quite a, a deep and aligned deal, and there would be political flack for being a rule taker. You know, remember, you know, 40 years of political narrative in the UK is very much against Brussels telling us what to do. Well, if you did a Swiss-style veterinary deal, Brussels would be telling you what to do, and essentially you'd be ruling out doing a trade deal with the United States because they want us to follow, be open to their food products that follow non-EU rules, things like chlorine-washed chicken, ractopamine-fed pork, etc. So there's one little thing you could do. Another thing you could do, uh, you could link carbon markets. So right now, UK carbon price is trading at a significant 50, 60 euro discount to EU carbon price. The EU is in the process of introducing carbon border taxes. Reporting requirements just started. Uh, payments in, in, from 2026. That means that a, a business inside the single market is going to have to have clarity 
on the embedded carbon in goods that they're importing, right? And so that means that if you're an EU business inside the single market, it's going to make it more complex, more expensive, and more cumbersome to trade with a UK business than one that's already inside the single market and already imported whatever it is that you're trading. Linking the carbon markets, and there's a provision for this in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, would remove, for example, that piece of friction and would be another area where Labour could look to cooperate with the EU. But nonetheless, you know, on a load of other things like conformity assessment, which is which is sort of standards, the CE mark, uh, professional qualifications and the movement of services professionals. I think all of that stuff that gets you closer to the single market will be harder than Labour uh, think because it will require the EU to agree to a certain level of what you might call cherry picking, where you're not a member of the single market, you're not following all the rules, you're not paying into all the budgets, but you are enjoying quite close benefits of single market membership. And hitherto in the Brexit debate, the EU have always said, no, that's not acceptable. Peter, so one of the things I think a lot of also foreign audiences may remember is global Britain and uh, all these slogans. England is a, the UK is a, is a source for, for slogans. The large majority never, ever really come to fruition, let's be honest. Talking about areas where the UK can cooperate. But the one thing that comes to mind, I've got a, a little bit of a two-parter. They're not really related. You talk about other countries that have similar agreements with the EU, Japan, America, New Zealand, but those are not countries. The US and Japan are large enough, fully dependent. They're, 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 they're not immediate relations and traders with the block right next door, right? The proximity in terms of geographical area is is a major factor there and and you know we see the uk under the uh, under trust as foreign secretary tried to negotiate what the australian deal i think the british government's own assessment said it would account to 0.008 percent of like growth in, in until 2035 i think that's the statistic concern so sort of first part is it's never going to be as as, as positive because america doesn't rely pure, as much on the eu as the uk and then the second point is that, you know the uk is taking steps to be active in non-eu areas like we've got the epc the european political community happening at the moment in granada and i believe maloney the prime minister of italy and sunak have been meeting to lead a uh, migration sort of agenda to try and control the the, the, the flows of uh, uh, migrants and uh, refugees and so on coming from Africa and, and the Middle East. What's your take on these two things? So on the first point, you know, the buccaneering Britain narrative, as I like to call it, and you saw Kemi Badnock at the party conference really suggesting that the membership of the Trans-Pacific CPTPP grouping yeah. was in some way you know, almost a replacement, a like-for-like -like replacement, as you say, it's not. You know, gravity is important in trade. The old adage is you double the distance, you halve the trade. By the government's own assessment, the CPTPP is worth 0.08% uh, uplift to UK GDP over the long-run period, whereas the cost of doing a very low-ambition low trade deal with your nearest partner, the EU, is probably in the region of around 4%, the central estimate uh, uh, that the uh, Office for of Budget Responsibility of the UK fiscal watchdog uh, uh, has put out. So obviously 0.08% is a lot smaller number than than 4%. You know, the reason for that as you say is 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 friction, is gravity. So for example, when I was talking earlier about carbon border taxes, it is true that mm. Japanese and uh, American businesses will face carbon border taxes, just like UK ones will. The difference between the US 
and Japan is that the UK is doing 50% of its trade still with the EU, and it's doing it via a very high friction, high intensity pipeline. We're connected to the EU umbilically by a tunnel. By a, by a pipe under the sea, right? You know, we are integrated into European supply chains. Most of the UK's, well over half of UK exports are part of what they call intermediate manufacturers, bits and pieces that go into wider yeah. products because we grew up inside the EU single market over the last 40 years. So our economy and our manufacturing is integrated into those supply chains, but nuts and bolts that whiz across the border, chemicals that come and go, get processed into something else, sent back across the border, made into something else, sent back, and it all ends up in a finished product that in the end goes to China, wherever it might be. When your economy is integrated into another trading block in the way that ours was, the impact of these frictional things like carbon border taxes or supply chain due diligence uh, requirements, et cetera, are much, much greater. I mean, it's an incredibly obvious point, but it's it's not a point that's internalized in the UK discussion and certainly not in the sort of you know conservative uh, buccaneering Britain, we're opening up new markets in Asia. I mean, remember when we remember the EU, we had trade deals with all these countries. We didn't have one with Australia and New Zealand, two very small economies, relatively 12,000 miles away. Actually, now the EU has one of those deals too, right? So we're trying to do a trade deal with India on the cusp of being negotiated, which you know is likely to be quite a shallow deal, I think. We've not managed to do a trade deal with Australia. You know, the net upside trade deal-wise of leaving the EU is incredibly small, but the cost to trade and the UK as an investment proposition of leaving the EU is far, far greater. So, you know, I think, you know, that penny is starting to drop. But I think because there's so little understanding of the way the single market operates, and there's so much rhetoric, anti-European rhetoric still in the UK, it's still quite a difficult political point to land with the electorate when you're trying to make the case for deeper integration. The, the wider point about the EPC, the European the Political Council, which is this Macron group, there's quite a lot of excitement about you know what's been called concentric circles, which, by the way, you know was an idea. You know, so different levels of membership, super core EU, then you know we, we, you know with the eurozone, wider EU membership, and then a you know another circle around the outside, which is where the kind of Keir Starmer would like to be, as close to the single market without actually being inside it. The trouble with this is, I mean, Francois Mitterrand had this, you know, was expressing ideas of this kind in the 1980s. You know, it's been around forever, this idea. And the EPC, the accession of Ukraine after the war is creating the need for, in theory, different structures to manage the wider EU neighborhood. And I think the hope is that over time, that may create you know, more kind of bespoke type footholds for the UK outside the EU to attach itself to Europe. And, you know, who knows? You talked about the elections. You know, imagine we have a Trump two, a Trump two presidency. Suddenly, you know, the differences between the UK and the EU will be put into considerable perspective if you have, you know, a Trump two administration that is, you know, essentially, you know, laying waste to global institutions as we know them. You know, that is a kind of political scientists hope these new structures can create new footholds for the UK. But what I would say is that's quite a long term proposition. And the thing about Brexit and about relationships with the EU is that relationships have have a half life, right? 
They're atrophying all the time. I mean, relationships between politicians, but between officials who aren't UK officials, not attending meetings anymore, not building contacts with their European counterparts, at anything like the pace and density that they were when we were an EU member, you know, commercial relationships. I often talk about the stock and the flow. People think of Brexit doing a one-off piece of damage to relationship. Actually, there was a lot of sunk cost in UK trading relationships with the EU. And actually, the bigger worry is that when we get into you know, the next generation of investments, so if you already had your car factory in the UK, yes, it was more expensive running your supply chains through Europe after Brexit. Yes, it was harder to get your stuff on time and, and, and to service your clients on time. But you've already spent however many billions investing in that plant. The real question the UK has got to ask itself is, when the next plant gets built, is that investor, whether it's in pharma, in autos, in chemicals, is that investor going to want to set up in the UK when they know that they're going to have this frictional relationship with the EU? And that's the challenge for the UK is now it's put itself outside its nearest market or made it frictional for it to engage with its nearest market. Can it convince people to invest? Can businesses retain their clients, retain their relationships? And when I talk to business, you know, it's difficult. It's, you know, it's not impossible. And that's why I go back to the boiling of the frog. It, it just creates drag that is going to be difficult to overcome. I enjoyed the boiling of the frog analogy uh, in the uh, conversation with Gideon, uh, and I'm glad we got to hear it here as well. To your point a little bit about this, I, th I think the also the, the example of the shifting from a manufacturing to logistics, it's, it's a gutting, isn't it? It's a gutting of some core industries in the UK. It's not a complete removal. There were fears initially that, you know, companies would just completely relocate to, you know, Frankfurt, Paris, uh, whatever. But we've seen a sort of a mixture really and, and, and a sort of a drawdown I think of, of activities in certain areas and it's, it's sort of they become like shell companies shell activities which is in some ways even worse because it's sort of as you say it just requires lower labor lower skilled workers but just more broadly to this um, I think the new European called it the four-tier EU membership model um, so for people, that was something in the core was called the accelerated EU. Uh, the second tier was, as you mentioned, uh, core EU members. Associate membership would be the third tier, sort of, I think one of the articles in New European suggests the UK may be interested in this one. And then the EPC uh, 2.0. So it's sort of, you know, countries at the moment have looser relationships as it is. I, I think this is one of the things people don't fully appreciate, which is that no matter what, because a lot of my friends, obviously people who just want to be back where we were pre-24, June 2016, the UK was very privileged. We had uh, a, a veto no other country had. Uh, we had this remarkable rebate system that Margaret Thatcher had established in the 80s for people that was essentially, um, you know, the UK would receive back a large proportion of what it was contributing. So I just love your thoughts on that. And then and, and then an actual tag on question is, what what's your perspective on the lessons it has taught us about getting too far in in such big things like economic blocks like this? Because other countries were quick to talk about, you know, Italy, Grexit, um, to use some of these buzz terms, and no country has since pursued it because they've seen the disastrous economic implications it has. <laughs> so I think it's definitely true when you when you when I used to be Europe editor uh, covering Italian elections a few years ago. 
Uh, a lot of Italians would say, you know, they're very fed up of Brussels dictating terms, debt relief and Eurozone bailouts, etc. They would say, look, you're lucky you didn't join the euro. Uh, and because you didn't join the euro, you're able to leave, right? We're stuck. We're trapped. So, that, you know, when you stick in northern Italy and sort of Salvini, the Lega Nord, and now the Lega, the, uh, the, the uh, you know, populist right wing leader, Matteo Salvini, his constituents would definitely say, you Brits are lucky. They wouldn't say that now. Right. You know, and, 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 but, you know, because as you say, you know, the, the cost of leaving the EU, particularly, you know, for Eurozone countries, are, are just far outweigh uh, uh, the downsides. Now, the EU has its own problems. It's got a migration problem. It's got an increasing, you know, populist parties problem because, you know, the UK's mm-hmm. Brexit problem is unique, but the UK's populism problem is not unique. Right. I mean, you know, the UK's, you know, we shouldn't think that Brexit is to blame for anything. Brexit is an expression of problems that, you know, the US, all post-industrial democracies are sharing, which is a problem about productivity and growth and investment. And it's all being squeezed even harder now because of, uh, you know, inflation and rising interest rates, you know, is making the old cheap money policies much, much harder to sustain. So the difference with Brexit and the UK is that Brexit, as I've tried to explain, creates a permanent structural problem, right? Whereas, you know, you could elect Donald Trump, or you could elect Matteo Salvini, or you could elect uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, and these people will come and go. The politics can shift back and forth. With Brexit, the politics can change, so we could get rid of a Tory government and elect a Labour one. But unless you're going to do something really fundamental like rejoin, you're stuck with the problem that you created. And you can try and Mm. massage it around the edges. But fundamentally, you remain, you can call it an associate membership, you can call it what you like you're still basically at a disadvantage in terms of trade with all those other countries who are inside the single market. And so, as you rightly said, you know, on the sovereignty question, ironically, as members of the EU, the UK was incredibly cherry-picked. So on things like justice and home affairs, we opted out of some things because we thought they curbed our sovereignty too much. And we opted into others, things like the European arrest warrant. Now, the right wing of the Tory party hated the European arrest warrant, but none other than Theresa May actually argued with them that it was worth ceding that little piece of sovereignty that meant that we had to send Brits back to face justice in Europe, just as Europeans had to face Europeans back to face justice in the UK. But it was worth it for our security, you know, and sovereignty is not a an absolute concept. It's something that we trade and it's a fungible commodity that we give away in return for something else. So Article 5 of NATO, the Common Defence Clause, you know, is a, is a giving away a piece of sovereignty. In a way, we commit to defend other NATO members. And that, you know, that means that we give some agency away. And we do that all the time. Unfortunately, in a world where nativist and nationalist politics are on the ascendancy, and if you saw, you know, the right wing of the Tory party at its conference in Manchester last week, there's increasingly kind of strident nationalist tones that, you know, looks at sovereignty in a very absolutist way. And when you apply that to Brexit, you know, you end up where we've ended up. And some people, you know, I think my, my, my point would be, you know, that if we're going to have the conversation, at least let's be honest. You know, if if the repatriation of sovereignty via Brexit in Brussels is worth not having a car industry for or having a much smaller car industry for, you know, if that's the trade off, then fine. 
But actually, the conversation never goes like that. The conversation goes, we can have our cake and eat it. Buccaneering Britain will be a trading behemoth. Well, actually, you know, if you if you look at uh, exports in volume times and just for inflation, they're still below where they were before 2019. So Brexit hasn't delivered buccaneering Britain in any way. It's not what Rishi Sunak told the Tory party in his speech. But that's what I, you know, that's why I wrote this book, in order to try and begin an honest conversation about what the actual costs are. If then everybody thinks, well, that's fine, we're happy to be poorer and smaller as a result of repatriating our sovereignty. And some people will feel like that, no doubt. But actually, what we have is a nothing to see here, really from both parties, nothing to see here, we'll be able to kind of just muddle our way through. And my worry is that that kind of soothing local anaesthetic that is applied all the time is going to lead to a world where, you know, the UK just gets relatively slowly poorer than than its, you know, first world competitors. And we'll look back in 20 years time and wonder why on earth we did that. Aren't we already poorer? I mean, inflation has outstripped wages since 2008. Yes, that's not strictly just down to Brexit. But I think we need to always remember for everybody who, you know, was like, what the hell is the UK doing? From Beijing to Moscow to DC, everyone was like, what are they doing? Leaving the EU? Like, what, what, what is that? So it's, it's, for me, it's the UK has not grown properly since Brexit, really. We've seen more average growth rates of half a percent. Yes, we take into mass uh, events like COVID, but every other G7 country is seeing some degree of growth. The Brit- the British government always like to push the statistic, you know, we were the fastest recovering country post-Brexit. Yes, but you were also the country that suffered the biggest contraction during Brexit. So, you know, let's, let's keep it proportionate. So is it just not a case of, we are until if we ever rejoin in a in a in a just a, a worse situation. We're just we're never going to full fulfill the the potential that was well never really there. Um, just to be clear, I mean I was Euro. I wouldn't say skeptic, but I was sort of I was against further into uh, to use my own father's quote. You know, gone too far too fast. Um, and there should be a refinement of the existing situation. You know, we need to work on the issues that the EU currently has, bringing on you know countries that feel neglected or outcast, pushed to the sidelines, just the fringes, um, you know, uh, and, and find a way to, 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 to normalize all this. Problem is, the further you expand, the more you need to think about uh, not just monetary policy, but then fiscal integration and policy. And then you talk about the loss of sovereignty even more. So it's like the UK has left, but ultimately, is that better? What about in the next five to 10 years, if we do see a significant shift in the UK government, could we see uh, a genuine attempt to sort of try and make the best of this situation? Or are we just clutching at straws and there's just Am I right to be cynical, uh, like the English weather? I think you're right that, that actually we were trending towards a really complex and difficult discussion, which you're seeing now within the EU. So if we were still a member of the EU, you know, as we get into deeper Eurozone integration, deeper debt mutualization, et cetera, the UK's position being outside the euro as, as a large economy with a large financial services sector was going to become ever more complex to manage, I think. Uh, Us being outside in some ways makes life easier for the European Union. I'm not saying it makes it better, but in in some ways it it makes the management of the bloc easier. You know, in Mm. terms of what happens in the future, I'm frankly sceptical that we end up back inside the EU. Uh, You know, the last section of the book, you know, is really an argument for, look, what the Labour Party is suggesting is pretty incremental. It's not going to fundamentally change the nature of the trading relationship. 
if that's the case, and we're honest about you know the cul-de-sac that we've backed ourselves into in that regard, we need to have a really aggressive and honest conversation about what makes the UK competitive. UK middle-class incomes are falling behind their, our rich world peers. One of the issues is a kind of complacency about what attracts investment. We need to talk about skills, about educational attainment. We need to talk about land release. We need to talk about what you know attracts investment and holds investment into the country. Because the UK is not you know, without massive advantages. London is still the soft power capital of the world in lots of places. You know, the English language, the rule of law, although the rule of law has had a bit of a hammering since since Brexit, honestly. You know, the UK is not on its uppers quite yet. But we need to have a really serious conversation about where we are if we're, you know, if we're not going to really patch up fundamentally the, the pipelines between us and the EU, where does the UK sit? What are we? Mm. And I don't think we've really answered boosterism and pie in the sky moonshottery isn't going to get us where we need to get to. A new government that is not beholden to and responsible for the current situation will, I think, open up broader ranges of discussion, uh, which is, of course, what is what we've not had since we since we left. But uh, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for, for joining us. I will have the book in the description. Um, and for everyone watching, thank you very much. Uh, if you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to give the video a like, uh, subscribe, share it around. Peter, I hope to have you back in the future, maybe for more positive discussions about this amazing new deal that has put Britain back on the map or something. But um, uh, until next time, everybody, take care.